0: at a commencement ceremony for a graduating class at the University of Michigan, then U.S. President George W. Bush used the term in this speech, quote, the notion of political correctness has ignited controversy across the land. And although the movement arises from the plausible desire to sweep away the debris of racism and sexism and hatred, It it replaces old prejudice with new ones. It declares certain topics off-limits, certain expressions off-limits, even certain gestures off-limits. End of quote. May 1991, George W. Bush. There are certain things today that you just need to be careful about when you talk about political issues and where we might stand in the political world, correct? Let's not talk about politics but let's not talk about religion either. Because what we're going to find here in this passage of Scripture is there is a political or a religiously incorrect thing to say that Jesus says here in John chapter 14, verse 6, when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Religious correctness from Jesus. Jesus is going to offend every religion in the world by making this statement. Every religion of the world: agnosticism, atheism, Baha' Faith, Buddhism, cultic paganism, Tao, Confucianism, Deism, Gnosticism, Hare Krishna, Heathenism, Hinduism, Humanism, Islam, Jehovah Witnesses, Mysticism, New Age, Occultism. Order of the Social uh, Solar Temple, Paganism, Pantheism, Roga Yoga, Satanism, uh, Scientology, Spiritism, Theism, Unification Church, Universalism, Yoduism, uh, Wicdom, uh, Wicca, every religion that you can possibly think of, he's going to throw underneath the bus, and he's going to throw your religion under the bus as well. More importantly, all of these religions that Jesus is going to say here by saying all other religions are false in comparison to me. And he is religiously sticking his neck out in a way, friends, where he is throwing every religion under the bus, even yours. And I would suggest this morning that you have a religion. And I'm going to suggest this morning that our religion, whatever it might be, if our religion keeps us from Christ, throw it away and let it be squished. Jesus, with this statement, is going to throw every religion under the bus and smash them like an animal that runs out in the middle of the road and gets squished underneath your tire and my tire. I couldn't help but do it two weeks ago. I was going up the road. I was going 45 miles an hour. I was obeying the speed limit, and out of the left-hand side of my eye, I saw the animal. I saw him go underneath my car, and there was nothing I could do. And all I felt was the bump-bump. I don't know what it was. I didn't go back to look. I just knew that it was squished. And with this statement, Jesus is going to squish every religious system that you and I and anyone has. In fact, in Wikipedia, they say that there are 4,200 religions in the world. I've listed for you. I've attempted to try and list for you all of the different religions of the world. The setting in John chapter 14, if you go back to John chapter 13 for just a moment, Let's paint the picture here of this passage of Scripture. The setting is a very somber setting. John chapter 13 is the time when Jesus is going to spend the last couple of hours with his disciples, and he's going to show them the love that he has by washing their feet. He's going to show them how much he loves them. And even though he's going towards the cross... And this is a very somber time in the life of Jesus and his disciples. He is here to meet the needs of his disciples. He's thinking of others. The surest way out of a personal pit of discouragement is to think of and to serve others. The surest way to deepen your dark times is to draw into yourself and to think about only yourself. Jesus here is coming to the climax of why he came to earth. This was the climax of why he came. He was to come to lay his life down on behalf of the world's sin, your sin and my sin, and to crush every religious system that tries to reach up to God because that's what religion is. God, let me try and reach up to you. And we're always going to fall short. We're never going to be able to reach that epitome of being holy. That's what we sang. saying. He's a holy God. And our sin creates that element of us attempting to reach God. And that's what religions do. I suggest to you that Christianity is not a religion. Christianity is much more than a religion. It is coming to know the living great I am of the heavens and the earth. That's the difference. And Christianity is God coming down to us. Christianity is God doing something for us that we could not do for ourselves. God sent his son into the world becoming human flesh so that he would lay his life down and here, hours before, he was to lay his life down. He's spending time with his disciples. Look at chapter 13, verse 30. In fact, the Bible describes it this way. We know the story, don't we? Judas Iscariot. Judas betrays Jesus. In verse 30, as soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and look at what the Bible describes, and it was nighttime. Jesus is going to go through the night, the darkness of his soul, as he prepares himself for laying his life down. If you look at chapter 13, at the very end of the chapter, Simon Peter, one of the favorite disciples, one of the most outspoken of the 12 disciples, makes this proclamation because Jesus is going to say that all of you are going to leave me. And Peter spe- steps up and he says, Simon Peter says, Lord, where are you going? In verse 36, where I am going, you cannot follow me, but you will follow me later. Later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I'll lay my life down for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? I tell you the truth, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Peter thought that he was going to be able to stand for Jesus in these days of darkness, these hours of darkness with Christ. And what does Jesus say in chapter 14, verse 1? Peter, disciples, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Don't trust in yourself. Trust in me. Don't even put your religion in yourself, Peter. You might think that you're going to go to the end with me, but I need to let you know that you're going to fail me three times. And we know the story. Before the rooster crowed three times, Peter denied the Lord. And Jesus is saying before this event happened, Peter, don't don't trust in your religious system of who you are. Don't even trust in yourself. You need to trust in my Father and trust also in me, but don't trust in yourself. That's a religious system that's going to fall short. Don't let your hearts be troubled. And in these moments of somberness that Jesus has with his disciples, he tells them to not be troubled but to trust. In verse 2 in my father's house are many rooms if it were not so I would not have told you I'm going there to prepare a place for you remember here that the disciples were promised the 12 disciples were promised a position in a place of judgment for the nation of Israel they would sit on 12 tribe they would sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes Remember what the book of Matthew says in Matthew chapter 19. Jesus told them, I tell you the truth, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Jesus promised that these twelve followers of him would sit on twelve thrones judging the nation of Israel. It's almost like these 12 become the supreme court rulers of Israel. That was the promise that these 12 had. And notice that there is a room for these 12, I believe, in the context. Jesus is going to prepare a place in the new Jerusalem for these 12 judges that will sit and they will make judgments in the city of Jerusalem and in Zion. I oftentimes think that this passage is pulled out of context and people say, see, Jesus is preparing a room for you and for me. I don't think the passage is talking to us as believers in this dispensation of grace. I think what Jesus is saying here to these 12 disciples is that they have a place that's prepared for them in the temple area, and Zion, the temple place where he is going to be worshipped, they're going to make judgments for the nation of Israel, and they've got a place, they've got a room. They will be the Supreme Court advisees, advisors for the nation of Israel, and these 12, that's why there's 12, they had to judge the 12 tribes of Israel. That's why when Judas hung himself, and they had to replace Somebody with that position that was vacant, why did they have to replace it? Because there was the promise of the 12 tribes that they would be judged in the coming renewal of all things. That's Matthew chapter 19. And so Jesus promises these 12 that you have a room and this new Jerusalem that comes from the heavens, if you read in Revelation chapter 21, chapter 22... What an amazing uh, new Jerusalem that comes down. 1,400 miles wide, 1,400 miles long, and 1,400 miles high. Chew on that for a couple of moments. The Bible describes the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and the new earth with no sea. The earth is going to be different. But there's not going to be a sea. There's going to be a new Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And what is that place of Jerusalem going to be? It's going to be a place where Israel is going to worship, and they're going to come to Zion. They're going to come to Jerusalem, and they're going to worship the great I Am. So Jesus here tells his disciples that he's going to prepare a place for them. He hasn't come back to reveal that yet. It's still future. Going back to John chapter 14, verse 3, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going, he says. And then Thomas is going to say, Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? What a great question. And now Jesus is going to make this amazing statement. He's going to say, I am the way. I am the truth, and I am the life. I'd like us for just a moment to take these three statements and just take a moment and ponder them. Look at this first statement, I am the way. Do you know that Wendy's has a way? Have you eaten at Wendy's lately? On their place, Matt, here's what Wendy's says. Quality food made just for you. That's Wendy's Way. Isn't that a great saying? You want to go to good quality food just for you? That's Wendy's Way. And then it's signed by David Thomas, the founder. That's why I love their food. (laughs) Quality food made just for you. That's Wendy's Way. See, we all have a certain way about us. Restaurants have them. Churches have them. Governments have them. What's your way? What's his way? Jesus says, I am the way. This was a new movement that Jesus began. In fact, in the book of Acts, we're told that this movement was called the Nazarene sect because he was from Nazareth. And because he was from Nazareth, there was people that followed him, so they called it the Nazarene sect. There was also some that started calling them Christians. People that followed him, they started calling them Christ ones, Christians. That's what they call us. Because we're connected to Christ. And in Acts, we're told in Acts chapter eleven, verse 26, they're used there the first time that it's used, that they are called Christians, those that follow Christ. But it's interesting that in the book of Acts, those that followed Jesus were called the way. Keep your finger here in John chapter 14 and turn over to Acts chapter 9. There are about five or six, maybe seven different places in the book of Acts where this phrase is used. In reference to the people that follow Jesus, they are called the way. In Acts chapter 9, we're introduced to Saul. Saul was a Pharisee. He was a religious He was a religious fanatic. He was so religious that he thought he was doing the right thing here in Acts chapter 9. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that he, if he found any there who belonged to the way. And there's the description that we find in the book of Acts about these that follow Jesus after his death, burial, and resurrection. What what is Jesus' way? Can we identify, can we somehow put on like a placemat? Following Jesus Christ is this. What does it mean to be a follower of him? What is the way? I think that the early Christian church the Jewish church here in the early book of Acts, and then the body of Christ that came out of the, the book of Acts, I think that there was a characteristic about them that was unique and different, and it was so different that they identified them as the way the Nazarene sect, they're Christians. These people are just different. And what was different about them? Take your Bibles and turn back to Luke chapter 9, Luke chapter 9, verse 23. I think this passage might be the climax here of following Jesus. What does it mean to follow him? Well, it means a lot of things. But I think in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, Jesus says it this way. Then he said to them all, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. We are called to follow Christ. Follow him in what? Laying our life down for others. That's what he did. That was the example. That was the life that he gave. He laid his life down for us. As we look at him, we too follow him, and we take up our cross daily, not monthly, not weekly, but daily, and we follow him. Look at Luke chapter 9, skip over just a little bit further in this text. If you go to verse 57, Jesus will describe further what it means to follow him. As they were walking along a road, a man said to him, I'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but The Son of Man has no place to lay his head. In the context, if you were to go back a couple of verses, Jesus was going through this area and nobody would open up their home for him. Nobody opened their home up to him. He was a stranger going through this area. And if you go back to the Samaritan opposition in verse 51 through 56, the opposition is he's a stranger coming through their land and nobody would open their home up to him. And so he makes this statement. Animals have places to rest their head, but I don't have a place to rest my head. Will any of you open your home up for me? That's too close, Jesus. Verse 59, he said to another man, follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury the dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I'll follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and Say goodbye to my family, and Jesus will respond to him and say, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the service in the kingdom of God. We got things to do. We got places to go. We got people to see. We got to do these things before we're going to follow you, Lord. Let me just do these things first, and then I'll follow you. And the Lord says, no, no. He says, follow me today. Make me number one. Put me at the top of your list. you got to bury your dead? I'm even more important than burying your dead. Really? Meeting the needs of other people becomes a tangible thing. I'm afraid, friends, that in our culture today, I'm afraid that we are so busy. We are so busy that we're too busy to meet the needs and to serve the people around us. We're too busy to do his way because we're busy doing our way. The greatest threat, I believe, to our spiritual life today is the pace of life that we live and our busyness. John Maxwell says it well when he says the greatest enemy of good thinking is busyness. One person said it this way, I wanted to figure out why I was so busy, but I couldn't find the time to do it. Mark Buchanan says in his book, Your God is Too Safe, one of the most convincing things I have recently come to realize about Jesus is that he was never, not once, in a hurry. And when we begin to relinquish our egos, you will no longer feel compelled to prove to people how busy you are in an attempt to validate your sense of worth. I mean, let's be honest, isn't that why we're busy? We want people to think we're busy because we want to think that we're really important. And we want people to know that we're really important, so I'm busy. I've got a brother that every time I see him I don't even ask him the question anymore. (laughs) Because I ask him, how you doing bro? I'm busy. I've heard it now for five years, ten years. I'm not gonna ask him anymore. So how's your business, bro? My heart runs at a pace that oftentimes is religiously driven by my agenda of busyness. And Jesus says, there's a way. There's a way that's different. I am the way. We rest in his grace. We rest in who he is. We rest in what he has done for us and we receive that grace and out of that receiving of grace that empowers us to be busy doing the things that need to be done. How often don't we say, well, we're too busy and then we fill in the blank to avoid whatever we need the Spirit of God is maybe encouraging us to do. Going back to John chapter 14, verse 6, there's a second statement here that he says, he says, I am the way, and he says, I am the truth. I am the truth. Jesus here is going to proclaim that everything that he says, everything that he does is truth. Pilate asks the question, so what is truth? Tell me, Jesus, what is truth? And right now we are in a situation where it seems like truth is hard to find when we watch the news. Are they telling the truth? Are they telling a lie? They're accusing one another. They're accusing each other. They're going back and forth. What is truth today? Truth is found in Christ. Abe Lincoln, I think, said it so well no one has a good enough memory to be a successful liar. Boy, I read that and I thought, man, that is so powerful. See, if we tell the truth, if we always tell the truth, we don't have to worry about going back and wondering what we said. Because truth will always stand. Truth will always hold on to the very end. It will never change. We don't have to distort it. The truth will always be the same. We become lovers of truth. Take your Bible and turn to 1 John. We're in John. The 1 John is way towards the back of your Bible. If You turn to 1 John... John is going to write yet another letter. The gospel that we're in is a gospel that he wrote to describe Jesus Christ as being the Son of God. That's the purpose of the gospel of John. 1 John is different, but he writes, the same John, he writes as one who saw the truth of who Christ is. In fact, look at 1 John chapter 1. I love what he says here. He says in 1 John 1, That which was from the beginning, that is Christ, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked at, and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. John taught. He, he saw his teaching. He, he, he touched him. He experienced Jesus firsthand. He saw the Son of God firsthand. And so he writes out of that experience. Can you imagine living and walking and conversations with the living God, Jesus Christ? That's who he is. This is not just some God that came from heaven that's a part of God. This was actual deity before them. And so John writes here in 1 John chapter 2, look at what he says in chapter 2, verse 3. We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know that we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. In other words, we follow him in the way that we live. Following Christ is a lifestyle of obedience to the Father. That's what Jesus did. Jesus was obedient to the father even to the point of death look at first John chapter 2 verse 7 dear friends I'm not writing you a new command but an old one which you have had since the beginning this old command is the message you have heard yet I'm writing you a new command its truth is seen in him and you because of darkness is passing and the true light is already shining first nine. anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother lives in the light and there is nothing in him to make him stumble. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. He does not know where he is going. Basically, the truth is, love one another. You want a demonstration of following Christ? Love one another. How is the world going to know that he is who he claims to be? By the love that God's people have For one another. Friends, that's to me why we come together every week. Every week, this is a pattern for my soul to remind myself that the reason that I'm here is to give to other people and to love and to share and for them to share. And it's vice versa. And the world sees that and they say, there's truth in that. What does love look like? (laughs) Love is the epitome of laying your life down for your friend. Laying your life down. And that doesn't mean necessarily martyrdom as much as it's just meeting the needs of going across the room and shaking another hand and saying, how are you doing today? Or what's going on in your life? And taking an interest in their experience. Jesus claims to be the one who is the truth giver. And truth is found as we demonstrate that to one another. Becoming lovers of others becoming lovers of those around us, becomes part of the way. We follow Christ in that element of following Him as we meet the needs of people around us. This past week when the snow was falling, it was early in the week. Boy, I hope that you've enjoyed the warm weather. (laughs) I sure have. This is wonderful. But early in the week, I don't know what day it was, but I remember it was snowing hard. Maybe it was last week. I just remember Rex DeBoer was outside, and Rex is one of our staff members that works here. But I just saw Rex out there in the snow, shoveling snow. His face was full of snow. His glasses full of snow. His hair was white, not because it was gray. And he was out there shoveling the sidewalks for us. And I just had to pause for a moment and just say, you know what? There's Christ. I saw Christ in that moment. And I thought to myself, that's what I want to be like. There's truth. He was out there serving the needs of others, and many of us, we never saw him doing that, but when we walked in today, the sidewalk was clear, not because of Rex, but because of the warm weather. (laughs) But you get the point, don't you? The idea is that truth is found in the way of loving and responding to the people around us. Remember that Jesus washed the feet of Judas that night, this night, here in John 14. Judas was one of the 12. Jesus knew exactly who he was and what he was going to do and what did he do. Now I'm going to skip you, Judas, because I know too much about you. boy, are you a character. And he goes off to the other disciple. No, he didn't do that. It says that Jesus washed the feet of all of the disciples. Boy, you talk talk about love tough love, a love that says, I will love you no matter how much you hurt me, I will love you. That's truth. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth. And let's go back to John chapter 14 and see the third statement that he makes here. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and I am the life. Remember how John started the gospel in John chapter 1 verse 1. In fact, let's do this. Let's go back to the first chapter here of John 1 and let's just remind ourselves of what John said here in the very first couple of verses of John 1:1 In the beginning was the word that is Jesus Christ and the word was with God and the word was God. He's claiming Jesus Christ to be deity. He's God. He's equal to God but he's God. Look at verse 3. Through him all things were made. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. Verse 4, in Him was what? Life. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. In Him is life. You want abundant life? You want life that lasts? Come to Christ. Remember in John chapter 10 when He said that I am the door, I am the good shepherd? He says, I will give you not just light, but I will give you abundant life. It will overflow your soul will not be able to contain Christ if you allow him to come in and to fill you. It will be so full that it will overflow and you won't be able to contain it. That's what, G- that's what John is saying about what Christ will do in our souls as we come to him and realize that he is life. Have you ever been so full of something? Have you ever been so full of something? that you couldn't contain it? Have you ever had those moments where you've had such joy that you couldn't contain it that you had to tell somebody about it? (laughs) Sure. Get a new birth of a baby in your family, whether it's your own, whether it's a grandchild or a great-grandchild, and there's joy that fills you and you want to tell others. We can't contain it. Jesus Christ becomes our life. He will be more than you ask if you receive Him and allow Him to come into your life. Most of us attempt to do something for God rather than putting our hands out and receiving from Him. We cannot give what we have not received. We have to receive first. And as we receive from Him, He will overabound in our soul. And out of that fullness, then what we do is we serve others. We don't do our good works for salvation. We do our good works because of our salvation. We're saved by grace through faith. Christ saved us by dying on the cross for our sins. We receive that as a gift. And we understand that he comes into our life not only to be Savior, but also to be Lord of our life. Wherever you want to take me, If God is taking you into your education, young people, some of you are in college or you're thinking about going to college, have we taken our college career and said, Lord, here's my college career. It's yours. You can have it. Wherever you take me, wherever you lead me, I will go and I will follow you. Have we done that yet? Have we been bold enough to say this is not my agenda? Don't fear either that if you do that, I don't believe that when we make that prayer to God, I think sometimes we're, we're afraid to do that because then we're afraid that, well, God's going to maybe push me into full-time ministry and make me a missionary or do something like that. And God is going to use your giftedness and your abilities with what you have been wired to do. And there are all kinds of places that Christ's likeness needs to be revealed. Can I also say, in the public area, arena of every area of life in our politics, in our business world, in our sports world, wherever God has plunked you, put Christ in the center and see what happens. Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 through 25 describes for us nine fruits of the Spirit. Let's turn over to Galatians chapter 5. Turn over to Galatians chapter 5, verse 9. Look at what God will produce in us. And the book of Galatians is a book that describes for us the emptiness of religion and the difference between religion and a relationship with Christ empowered by the Spirit. Do we live by law or do we live by grace? That's basically the theology of Galatians. Do we live by law or do we live by grace? Law is here's all the things that I'm attempting to do for God. Is this enough, God? Am I pleasing to you? Here's the law. Paul says it's not the law, it's the grace. Live in grace. What does grace mean? Grace says I believe that I am who I am because my identity is found in Christ. And everything that I need, everything that my soul yearns for is found in Christ, not my religion. So it's not law, but it's grace. That's the theme of Galatians. And then what Paul is going to do is he's going to introduce us to the tool of grace by way of the Spirit of the Holy Spirit's work in our life. Look at Galatians 5, verse 16. So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. There's a a war that goes on inside our heart and our soul for either religion or for Christ. And I think this is daily... Every day, our Christian walk with God has a conflict of religion or grace. Law, grace. What I do for him, what he's done for me. And this is what Paul says here, this is a constant war. It is a civil war in our soul. What does Paul say as he continues here? They're in conflict with each other so that you don't do what you want to do. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under law. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, fractions and envy, drunkenness, orgies. Paul, stop, would you? Please, quit describing my soul. I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But... The fruit of the Spirit is, and here's the fruit, we don't produce it ourselves. We trust for his love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-controls against such things there is no law. You want more patience? Trust that God will give you that patience. It comes through Christ, through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. First step is believing that Christ died for me when, he, when I believe that. The Holy Spirit indwelt me, and now I've got the Holy Spirit that indwells me, and he's producing Christ-likeness in my life on a daily basis. It's the work of the Spirit of God. He doesn't let us go. He doesn't let us go. The result is that Christ becomes the focus of our life. Going back to John chapter 14 and closing, we find here that John is going to describe jesus here in this passage philip is going to ask lord show us the father and that will be enough for us i wonder friends if we will ever see the father i wonder if when we get to heaven that we will not see the father maybe the father is one that we will never see but if we've seen him jesus says philip if you have seen me you have seen the father the father The unseen Father is seen as we come to Christ. And then what Jesus is going to do is he's going to make this statement here that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And then he's going to finish this time with his disciples in chapter 14. He's going to do some powerful preaching and teaching in the somber moments before he goes to the cross. Look at what he preaches on. The promised Holy Spirit in John chapter 14 verses 15 through 33. We're going to come across this next I am statement in John chapter 15 where he says, I am the true vine. And two weeks from now, we're going to look at that statement, I am the true vine. This is filled with Jewish innuendos. And the Jewish nation, when they heard this statement, I am the true vine, they should have responded and said, this is our Messiah. He's going to teach further about loving one another in chapter 15, verses 9 through 16. He's going to teach on the world hating Christ. He's going to teach about the work of the Holy Spirit in a world that will hate you. And then look at the last verse of chapter 16. Chapter 16, the very last verse, verse 33. I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And then at this point, Jesus is going to do the Lord's Prayer. All of John chapter 17 is the Lord's prayer. He's going to pray this prayer in John chapter 17. And from this point on, he's now going to go to the cross. And he's going to give his life on behalf of your sin and my sin. Find here that Jesus makes this powerful statement. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Somebody told me this morning that they saw a sign that read, If the donkey or the elephant have let you down, turn to the lamb. Religiously incorrect, Christ smashes all of our religions. All 4,200, no, billions. Do you have a religious system this morning? What does it look like? What are you attempting to do? Is anything getting in the way of Christ? If it is, can I suggest this morning that you allow the Spirit of God to smash it? This is radical This is radical thinking. This is radical faith. There's nothing easy about it in the sense of he's asking not for just a part of your life. He's asking for all of our life. What will we do? How will we respond? Will this statement be religiously incorrect or will we embrace it? And we will say, Jesus Christ is my way, he's my truth, and he's my life. How about you? Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer, shall we? Our Father in heaven, we are so grateful this morning for the truth that is found in your Son. Father, thank you that you have given us this great gift of salvation. Thank you, Father, that he went to the cross and that he did the work of Calvary for us, that we don't need to add anything. And we don't want to take away anything from what he did there at the cross. His death was sufficient to pay the penalty for our sin. Father, may we believe that. May we embrace that. And not only the cross of Calvary, but all that he has taught us on how to live. May the Christ-likeness that the Spirit of God is producing in us, Father, be seen as we yield ourselves again to Christ and to Christ alone. Father, thank you for the truth that is found in him. May he be lifted up and exalted in this place. And may you receive the glory and the praise. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.